Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Paul's letter to Titus. Paul's letter to Titus is found just after 2 Timothy. It's a a small uh, book, just three chapters, but we're going to spend some time uh, for the next few weeks in Titus. Uh, So go ahead and find that. Chapter 1 is where we'll be today. And as you find it, here's the key concept this morning. When the plain sense of Scripture makes sense, seek no other sense. I'll show you how that fits in to what Paul tells Titus in just a moment, but we're looking together at, for the next few weeks, at what's called a pastoral epistle. What that means is Titus is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a pastor, Pastor Titus, in which he gives some practical advice on how to conduct ministry in a church of Jesus Christ. And we get to peer over the shoulder of Pastor Titus as he reads the letter, and we get to gain Paul's advice as well. And in chapter 1 of Titus, what we'll see is that in order to protect the integrity of the work of God, we have to protect the integrity of the Word of God. We have to protect the Word of God against those who would reject what I'm calling here the plain sense of Scripture against those who would want to lead us into some kind of convoluted, complicated, and confusing error. And it's happened all through the history of the church. Confusing, complicated-sounding things that sound authoritative and sound impressive, but are in fact false. For an example, back in 1977... 14-year-old Nathan Zahner circulated a petition in his school calling for the banning of dihydrogen monoxide. Didn't want that used on campus anymore. It sounded serious. He was talking about the safety concerns of this this, uh, compound. It causes burns. it, It corrodes metal. It's been found in autopsies of victims of sudden death. And he claimed this thing is readily available on school campuses Students are exposed to it every day. It sounded ominous. It sounded scary until you figure out that dihydrogen monoxide is H2O. It's water. And it was all a hoax. But people were swept up because it sounded impressive. Be careful lest you fall prey to complicated and confusing error. In chapter 1 of Titus, we'll see Paul call upon this pastor to mobilize leaders who will be faithful to the teaching of the Word and lead the church in humility. But before we get to that, let me introduce you a little bit to Pastor Titus because we don't know a lot about him. Uh, He's in this uh, setting, as Paul writes him, he's pastoring on the island of Crete. There's a number evidently of starting, of fledgling ministries starting up. And Paul writes him to get things organized so that he can lead the church as well. So go down to verse 4. Read with me as Paul speaks to Titus. He says, To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was so that you might straighten out what is left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Paul calls Titus his son in the faith, but Titus is never mentioned in the book of Acts, but we do see him appear in Paul's epistles. We first hear of him in Galatians, 
As Paul tells of going to Jerusalem to meet with the church leaders there to, to describe and defend, in a sense, his mission to the Gentiles, he says in Galatians, he takes Titus with him as an example of a converted Gentile. In 2 Corinthians, Titus, it seems, is the deliverer of both Corinthian letters from Ephesus where Paul writes them to the church in Corinth. Of course, he appears here in the book named, uh, named after him, but he also again appears in 2 Timothy, Paul's last book. He's written, uh, written before, just before he dies. Evidently, by that time, Titus has completed his ministry on Crete. He's in Rome with Paul, giving him ministry and support, and then he has left there and gone to what Paul calls Dalmatia. You would call it Albania there to spread the gospel message. He's an active servant for Jesus Christ. And it's likely that Paul and Titus went to Crete to plant the churches Paul's writing to now after Paul's uh, first, uh, first Roman imprisonment when he had a little gap of freedom. And there he and Titus went and worked on the island of Crete. And the purpose of this letter is to encourage Titus to make the changes that he needs to make and to allow the Cretan people to see that Titus is working under the authority of the Apostle Paul so that he can accomplish what he needs to do. This letter is written most likely at the latter part of A.D. 63, yet it's still relevant for us today. Go back to verse 1. This is what we read. Paul, servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith that Faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at His appointed season, He brought His Word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. Paul opens the letter by calling himself an apostle and a servant of Jesus Christ. And, 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 and he attaches to that title a bit of a job description, a, a personal mission statement. He says, my role is to work for the sake of the elect. The elect are those who know Christ as personal Savior. He says, I do what I do for their sake to enhance their faith and their knowledge of the truth. And this knowledge of the truth is the pathway to godliness. That's why it matters so much, he says. In order to go work, walk the pathway to living the way God wants us to live, we must know what he says. So the gospel is never unglued to a life of godliness. But godliness is not a joyless, morbid, boring kind of existence because he says in verse 2, godliness has a foundation. It's based on everlasting life, that hope that we have before us. And so it is a joyful experience. And Paul wants everybody to experience that. And we want that today to be our experience to be growing in grace, to be moving towards godliness as we learn the Word of God. So pray that we have ministry leaders who love learning the Word of God. Pray that we have ministry leaders who love the truth of God found in His Word. Pray that our church leaders will value depth of insight, digging into the Word of God and mining it for the truth that it holds. Pray against a shallow, showy, performance-based ministry that entertains us but does not ennoble us towards godliness. Pray against a false, self-centered interpretation of Scripture. 
that keeps people busy, but that does not make them godly. And Paul says that's what you have to accomplish, Titus. And to accomplish that, verse 5, appoint elders in the cities where we planted churches. And he asks them to do that because of what's happening. The situation is dire. And look at verse 10. Here he describes the context of Titus's ministry. Verse 10, For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. You see, here on Crete we have a rebellion. Here on Crete we have deception. We have false teaching for dishonest gain. And against that backdrop, Paul says, you need to appoint elders. Now maybe that surprises you. It sounds like the theological house is on fire, and he says, appoint elders. Heresy has come into the church, and he says, appoint elders. Well-meaning Christians are being pulled away from the truth. And Paul says to Titus, you need to get organized. You need to put together the nuts and bolts of the organization. Now, there's something about that charge at that moment that doesn't quite seem emotionally to fit the moment. Rather, we would say, Paul, what about publishing a manifesto? What about holding rallies to expose error? If it was modern day, we would say, what about writing a blog, setting up a podcast, you know, going on social media, getting into a great theological debate so you can sway hearts and minds away from error? What about exposing these false teachers and the false prophet that they're making from it so that Cretans can see that these guys get what's coming to them? Paul, you got to go on the offensive. The place is burning down. It doesn't seem like getting things organized, creating job descriptions is the moment. But Paul says, no. The first thing you do when you're going to fight error is you get organized. You appoint elders. And he says that for this reason. Paul knows how vital church leadership is, how vital structure is, how vital process is for the work of the ministry to stay the course. Paul wants Titus to construct a, uh, construct a scaffolding that will support the long-term gospel work, long-term godly doctrine, long-term unity of believers on Crete. And that takes organization and process and leadership. So Paul's first strategy is his long-term strategy. You've got to get leaders in place. See, this is what has happened. Among the groups of believers in the various towns on Crete, there was a leadership vacuum. Nobody was really stepping up uh, to, to lead as was needed. And into a leadership vacuum, Satan will send strong-willed people who are not afraid to speak up, but they'll take us in the wrong direction. So Paul says, you've got to get organized. You've got to get elders together. And this is what the elder should be. Read with me the qualifications, starting in verse 6. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is trusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. 
He must work, I mean, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. You learn some important things about church leadership here. And since we're all involved in church, we should know these things. Number one, we learn that church leadership is plural. He says you need to mobilize elders, plural, elders. A plurality of elders has the shared load of leading the congregation together. It's an important thing for us to see today. And why that is, is because today we see a growing a tendency for churches to move away from this model. We see a growing tendency for churches to be kind of formed around a strongly pers a strong personality senior pastor who is kind of the single anointed one and CEO of the church without a shared leadership structure. I want you to see that Paul would not organize a church that way. A group of Spirit-filled uh, spirit elders lead the church, pastors serving with them, using His gifts to guide and to enable. And so that's kind of the structure. But inside the structure, we have people. And what kind of people do the elders need to be? Well, first he says there's a behavioral qualification. The elder needs to be blameless. Whoops. Does anybody qualify? Blameless? The problem is he's using that word uh, in a way that we don't ordinarily use that word. Don't read it as perfect. The word literally translates without indictment. If you have the New American Standard Bible, it's above reproach. But sometimes that sounds like perfect to our ears too. It's really could be translated not chargeable with an offense. His lifestyle, in other words, must represent conduct that is befitting a Christian and not conduct that is not befitting a Christian. Why? Because the issue is reputation. The work of the ministry. And if the messenger is tainted, the message will seem tainted, even though it's perfect. So you have to be uh, you know, above reproach in that sense. There's those behavioral qualifications. But there's also domestic qualification. He should be the husband of one wife and his kids should not be running amok. Because Paul thinks the way a man is leading his family is going to reflect the way he's going to lead the church. So pay attention there. Husband of one wife. The literal translation of that phrase is he needs to be a one-woman man. In other words, promiscuity is out. Polygamy is out. You need to demonstrate that you're committed to your spouse over the long haul of life. Remain faithful in a loving, honest, devoted relationship. He's devoted to his spouse. And his children must be devoted to him. Respectful believers, respectful of his authority. Once again, we need to understand what he's saying. He's using the word children, and the word there in Greek is techna, it means young children. Okay? So these are children who are under the authority of their parents, but old enough to believe, and their behavior must be something that demonstrates respect for their father and for the faith. But he pluralizes that because he's really talking about a family system. He's talking about how, how the, the system of the family needs to operate. In other words, the man in his home should have a reputation of seeking proper godly influence in his family. It doesn't mean that none of these kids can ever have a problem. Because there are no families like that. 
But it does mean that, that we're, we're looking at the system of a family that seeks to operate under God's overall pattern. And the children are part of that. So he's got char- uh, behavioral qualifications. He's got domestic qualifications. Now he's got character qualifications in verses 7 and 8. There's a moral restraint that is leveled on a leader of the Christian community. So there are things that he must not demonstrate. An overbearing, pushy, my way or the highway kind of attitude need not apply. Quick-tempered, easily angered need not apply. Drunkards need not apply. Dishonest businessmen need not apply. But it's not as simple as don't do these bad things. It is you must do those things, pursue those things that are demonstrating the good and proper practice of seeking to grow in Christ. Now all of this adds up to we want our elders, our ministry leaders to be examples of men pursuing faith in Jesus Christ, following hard after Christ and changing their lives along the way. But there's also doctrinal qualifications. Go look at verse 9. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. He must hold to and be able to teach sound doctrine. This doesn't mean that all our elders need to be public speakers but they need to be influencers for that which is right doctrine against that which is wrong. And that is because the role of the elder is crucial in any church ministry. You can sum it up in three words. It is direction, discipleship, and doctrine. The elder gives ministry direction. The elder promotes discipleship of the people as a way of life and makes sure that the the preaching and the teaching of the church is talking about right doctrine. Why? Because the threat of error, the threat of exaggeration, the threat of going off the rails is always around us. It always has been. And over the course of the history of the church, we've seen it again and again. Strong personalities pushing us outside of the road of the true faith. So, in Titus's situation, false teachers have arrived. In Titus's moment, they're already active. The leadership is a vacuum. Titus has to react. He has to have elders who give direction. The the leaders will need to steer the church through the landmines because there's always new ideas. There's always new thoughts. New programs come along and they try to advertise that everything was going to be great because of them. And the elders need to evaluate and steer the ministry correctly. They need to promote discipleship. It means we are an outpost in an immoral culture And we need to be able to be in the Word and prompt ministries that get us into the Word so that we can learn what godliness looks like and value it for our lives. And we need need to enable, like I said, right doctrine. All of this, Paul stresses, because of Titus' situation. Let's read that situation again. Verse 10. For there are many rebellious people Mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. What is happening is we have here the outbreak of Paul's old nemesis. We've noticed them again and again in the New Testament. We call them the Judaizers. 
They were the ones that taught that salvation is not as simple as turning to Jesus in faith and receiving His mercy and love. No, 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 no. It's much more complicated than that. First, you have to become a Jew. You have to come under the law. And then as a person under the law, you can progress to know the one true Messiah. Paul constantly throughout his ministry is denouncing this hybrid of Judaism and gospel. In Galatians, he says, this is no gospel at all. That's not good news. See, the legalism part of it is, is emphasizing the fact for, that for Gentile males, they, they would need to be circumcised, come under the rules of the, of the Jewish faith and, and their the religion, and then follow Christ. Legalism. And then, in verse 14, he says, and they're teaching Jewish myths. What is that? Well, the best we can make out is that the, the, t- the teaching was a complicated combination of myths and legends about Old Testament characters. They were exaggerated teachings about the supposed symbolism that was embedded in the genealogies found in the Old Testament. Reading into the Scriptures these fanciful, uh, fanciful ideas rather than simply opening up the Bible and taking out of the Scriptures what it plainly teaches us. That's what Paul is, is focusing on when he calls them empty talkers and deceivers. Empty talkers in Greek is one word. And it, really, it means this. Those who use big words but say little. Do you know people like that? Wow. Wow. What a vocabulary. I have no idea what he's talking about. You know, I'm really not, not so concerned about communication, not so concerned about getting the point across, but about how they look, about puffing themselves up, being in the spotlight, kind of being first in that regard. And, and these guys, not only are they empty word, uh, big words saying little, but really the little that they do say is wrong. And it's influencing people in the wrong direction. Paul would agree with the key idea this morning, and that is when the plain sense of Scripture makes sense, seek no other sense. Don't bring in complicated error that aggrandizes yourself. And also, these men are rebellious. And I say that because this issue has been settled. Even though the Judaizers dog Paul's ministry throughout his career, really they're rebelling in doing that because there has been a council in Jerusalem recorded in Acts 15. That's taken place 13 years before he writes this letter. But these guys still aren't falling in line. They don't heed. The council said that is not correct doctrine. That is not correct teaching. We reject the Judaizers' message. But they rebel against God, against God's ordained authority, against the Word of God. And they do that for a reason, and the reason is given to us in verse 11. They are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. They have ulterior motives. Religious work for these particular men in this particular situation is a business. It's a job, but more than that, it's a con job. And they are reaping financially for it. Paul says to Titus, and by extension to us, when you are faced with false teaching for false motives to gain false profits, you have one task, and that is to rebuke and replace those teachers. Go to verse 13. 
He's just talking about a, a saying that was, was circulated in his day, how Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. That's in verse 12. He's not seeking to win friends and influence people here. But he, we recognize from that statement that there, was, there were issues on Crete. You know, every letter is written by Paul. He writes to a situation. Things are going on. And we have one side of the conversation here. And there, there were cultural and behavioral problems on the island of Crete which caused that saying that he's just quoting, that saying, that caused that saying to be circulated in that day and age. We're going to encounter that in the next few chapters as we see Paul particularly teach, don't do this, do this. We get a sense of what the problems were, okay? But Paul quotes that in verse 12, and then he says in verse 13, this testimony is true. <laughs> oh boy. Okay, so he recognizes we have some issues there, but he says regarding these false teachers, therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith, that the people will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. Paul recognizes that on the island of Crete, the theological house was on fire. And Titus needs to be in the front line there appointing leaders who will join with him to defend the faith and to speak against the evil that's happening and the error that's happening. And it takes mobilized people to do that, to say yes to that. You see, here's the other side of this whole discussion. The other side of the equation is this. The leaders needed to be willing to step up, right? See, Paul's making an assumption when he says to Titus, appoint elders. He's making, actually he's making two assumptions. Assumption number one, that God has men there who are able to be elders. And assumption number two, that those elders will step up when called upon to do so. Now, I believe with all my heart that in every church ministry, God gives us just what we need for what He wants us to do. He gives us the leadership we need. He gives us the gift mix that we need, the divine design mix that we need so that we can, when mobilized, do what God wants us to do as the people of God. I believe God takes care of that. We don't have to take care of that. I'm not out recruiting certain people, you know. I'm just waiting for God to show me who they are here already. And then we need to be willing to say yes when the opportunity comes. Because that opportunity will ask us to step up. We're not all going to be asked to be elders, but we're all asked to do something because we're in this together. Paul trusted that there would be those who would be willing to step up. And they didn't, probably didn't even see it in themselves yet. I doubt it very strongly. These are new churches, new Christians. They didn't really already recognize, you know, I have leadership skills. I ought to be bringing them to the church. No. It probably was a shock to these men when Pastor Titus knocked on their door. Excuse me. Would you consider being an elder? We need your leadership skills. They're probably scared. But they said yes. It reminds me of a story, true story, that was reported in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. This was back in 2018. The title of the story was NHL Stunner. And here's the body of the story. There's a man named Scott Foster. Scott Foster was a season ticket holder, big fan of the Chicago Blackhawks, probably still is. And uh, he used to play hockey. Uh, he played in uh, Western Michigan University. But at, this, at the telling of this story, at this situation, he was 36 years old. College is long in the glory days, long gone by. 
but he's such a, a well-known fan of the Chicago Blackhawks that one game he was designated the emergency goalie. Now, that was an honorary title. The emergency goalie got to sit in the press box, get free food during the game, get his picture up on that big screen, you know, emergency goalie Scott Foster and all that, and it was just kind of an honor for a fan that was truly supportive of the team. This particular night, they were playing the Winnipeg Jets, and unfortunately, both the goalie and the backup goalie were injured in the game. So guess who they called on? Right, the emergency goalie, which was an honorary title to begin with. But literally, he came out of the stands, walked onto the ice, got the gear on, and was called upon to be the goalie for the rest of the game. He admitted later that he was so nervous, he didn't remember even playing any of the game. He didn't, it was completely a blackout in his mind. He said, the last thing I remember is thinking to myself, put your helmet on, put your helmet on, put your helmet on. But he rose to the occasion. He stopped seven shots during his time that he was playing it, right? He was named the MVP of the game. See, here was what Paul is saying to Pastor Titus. You have MVPs in the stands. You got to get them out of the stands, get them to put their spiritual helmets on and get in the game and go to work. The spiritual house, the theological house is on fire. And this is always what we need. We need to pray for our leadership. We need to pray that these would be people who love the Word, who love the truth, who love mining the Word for its truth and, and nurturing their souls towards godliness and lead us as a church in that direction. And we need to pray, each of us, about our place and what we're doing. Because like I said, we're not all called to, el to be elders, but some of us are. And all of us are called to play our part. And this, the, the thing is simple. I'm going to get out of the stands I'm going to put my spiritual helmet on and I'm going to do something for the glory of God. And when you say yes, He will be glorified. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank You that You will direct us when we go astray. That You will prompt us when we need to say yes to that next step of involvement for the sake of the work, for the sake of prompting people towards godliness. Lord, forgive us for the times that we weren't all that concerned. Forgive us for the moment when godliness doesn't seem all that valuable to us. Help us to see that all of this is a journey towards glory and we want to take others with us. So help us, watch over us, convict us where needed, use us, so that you may be glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.